Well, welcome to all those of you who are visiting, and uh, it's good to see you all again, the rest of you. We are here in the middle of a series on Advent. In the liturgical calendar, we are in the beginning. Uh, our liturgical calendar is something that we follow as a people of God. It helps to center our very beings on the life, the death, the resurrection, um, and the beginning of the church in Pentecost. And so with all of our beings, we kind of focus in on the liturgical calendar from time to time. And right now, we're in Advent. And Advent has kind of this dual nature, as we've talked about before. On the one hand, we're looking back to when Christ came as a child, when God himself became incarnate and came to this earth. And we're kind of posturing ourselves almost as if we were a first century Jew. So what would it have felt like to be um, a people under Roman oppression, struggling day in and day out for their livelihood, expecting this Messiah? And so that's looking back. We're also looking forward, imagining what it's going to be like when Christ comes back, for he has promised that he will return. And when he returns, all things will be made right. So the systemic injustice, the pain and the suffering, and also the personal things that we find are are hurtful in our day-to-day relationships with others or the pain that we've suffered, all these things will be made right. And so we're longing to look forward to that day. And yet, we're not there yet. And so we're here in the middle. We're caught between these two different advents, if you will. And what we've been doing is examining the songs, um, different songs in the first chapter of Luke, and how those things speak to this Advent, this between-the-times moment, and how they can help us imagine what the first Advent must have been like. And so two weeks ago, we examined Gabriel and Mary and that call from Gabriel to Mary to uh, carry the child, the Savior of the world, and what that must have been like, how that was a simple yes, but also a costly yes. Then last week, we examined Mary's song, her song of praise that she gives after she visits um, her sister Elizabeth and gets this news, she rejoices. And we talked about what it means to, to be expectant, to pray that prayer, come, Lord Jesus, come. And so the other night, uh, Matt, myself, Carson, and Mark all went out to get a drink, as good Anglican staff members do. And uh, on the way back, Mark and I were on the tee, and we were talking about what this sermon was going to look like today, what this series, and it just kind of hit me. I just had that moment of like, wow, this whole series thus far has been about faithfulness. It's been examining the faithfulness of God and the faithfulness of Mary's response and what that means. And I think that that's something that I want to continue to explore today in our passage in the Song of Zechariah. Um, So we'll be examining what it means um, to be a faithful person responding to God's faithfulness But before we do, I just want to offer a little bit of background as well into, again, as we're looking backward into the first century world. Now, every culture, every people group, every society has an overarching story. There's something that we all participate in. Sometimes we don't even know it. It's so ingrained in us. And this could obviously be divided into subsets, into ethnic groups, into geographic regions, um, into socioeconomic socioeconomic backgrounds, but I believe that there's a larger story that we as an American people know. So if you are not American, you're joining us tonight, welcome. Hopefully this will be educational. I hope you don't have uh, second thoughts about us as a country, but if you are American, you might not even recognize this because it's so central to who we are, and it's what's called the American dream. Now, this was first expressed in 1931 by James Truslow Adams, a historian 
actually a historian from the New England region, wrote um, some documents on history of New England, and he describes this. This is his definition of the American dream. Life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone, with opportunity for each according to ability or achievement, regardless of social class or circumstances of birth. He goes on to say that the idea of the American dream is rooted in the second sentence sentence of the United States Declaration of Independence, which states that all men are created equal and that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So this is a story. This is the story of America in some way. This is the American dream. We all participate in this desire for life, liberty, and happiness. We all desire that everyone has a chance to do it. It's kind of our right as an American to pursue that. And this story um, is not just something that we find in the written documents, the political statements of our country, but it's a story that's actually pervasive in everything that we do in culture, in music, in movies, in television. And it comes up all the time that we forget that this actually isn't the story of all countries, and this hasn't been the story of the whole world, because we're just so used to it. This has always been our American story. And I think um, something that highlights this is the movie The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, It came out in 2006, starring Will Smith. I don't know how many of you saw it. Um, But it was based on the story of Chris Gardner. In 1981, Chris, who is actually a real person, um, this movie talks about him as investing in bone density scanners. Basically, this is supposed to be the new X-ray machine. He invests in these scanners, and it ends up not being quite what he expected it to be and his wife decides to leave him because she feels like he's throwing his money away over and over again. He's a fledgling entrepreneur, but investing in the wrong things. His wife leaves him, so he's alone with his son, Christopher, who's in preschool at the time. And within a couple of days, the IRS comes knocking at his door and demands back taxes. So he ends up losing all of his savings, and he becomes homeless with his son. And there's one scene, especially when he, he and his son sleep in the bathroom of a subway uh, stop. And they eventually find a home to live in that uh, he has to be at every day at 3 p.m. in order to get a spot for he and his son to sleep that night. But he also has, runs into the manager for Dean Witter, which is a stock brokerage company. And this guy has a liking to him, and he says well, Chris, come join me and apply for this job. Chris applies for the job, but it ends up being an internship, unpaid internship. And so he decides, well, he's got nothing else to lose because if you succeed in the internship, there's 19 people in the internship that are competing for one spot to be a broker. And this is his dream. This is what he wants to pursue. This is his chance at life, liberty, and happiness. And so he engages in this. He, he joins this, and he's working as hard as he can from early in the morning until 3, runs home to try and runs to the street to try and get a job at this homeless shelter. And this is his day, day in and day out. But he never lets on that he's doing this. At one point, his boss asks for a $5 bill, a loan for a taxi. He thinks, oh, he's got a well-paying job. He probably, doesn't, he probably doesn't need the money. Little did he know that that's Chris's last $5 bill. And so this is kind of scene is playing out. And um, I want to show you a clip. It's kind of building up to this moment where he is about to be called in for an interview to see if he's going to get this internship or not. So, again, he's got nothing. This is kind of all on the line for him.
Now, the reason I chose to, and that might seem like a little long to you, and the reason I chose to keep going with that clip is that this is also a good test to see if you're a robot or not, because when you're in the movie theater and this moment hits, you have the whole story be before you, it's hard not to come to tears. And there's a reason for that. This story is emotive. It speaks to our very core. The fact that there's beautiful strings and Will Smith is crying also helps. But there's, there's an emotive part here in that when we talk about this, this overarching story of America, it resonates deep with our very beings. It's something that we've been surrounded by, indoctrinated with, we've um, been ingrained with since we've been born. And it's all pervasive in our culture. And this story is, is the American story, but that doesn't mean that other countries and other peoples don't have a story. And we, as the people of God, have a story as well. And our, our story doesn't have a movie. It wasn't written about and created in an era where there are movies and film. But our story ought to be just as emotive. Our story ought to be just as powerful. So that same emotion that we feel for this character ought to be the way that we engage in this story of the people of God. And the story of the people of God is something that the Israelites would have told over and over. And I can imagine as they were sitting in their tents or in their houses at different points in the Israelite story, telling the story, coming to tears as they share the story of God. And the story of God went something like this, that in the beginning God loved, God loved God. He loved the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They loved each other. And they told the story about how the Israelites told the story about how they created the world, a good world, a world that was full of love. And yet in the middle of this world, sin entered. And there was pain, and there was brokenness. And God began a rescue mission to rescue the whole entire world. And as he began to do so, he called forth a people to join him in this rescue mission. He calls Abraham, and he says to Abraham, I've chosen you, I will give you land, I will give you offspring but I'm calling you to be my representatives to the rest of the world. And so he calls forth the people of Israel. But he calls forth a broken people. He calls forth humans. And so these people, these descendants of Abraham, they stray, they run from God, then they run back to God, and they run from God, they run back to God. Eventually they're put into slavery by the Egyptians. And they cry out to God and say, God, we know the story. The story is that you are rescuing the world. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God responds to their cry in bondage and he releases them in the exodus. And they wander and they finally land a home. And they raise up a king named David. And as we read in our Old Testament passage, God makes a deal with David. He says, David, I choose you. And from your line, I will bring forth a Messiah. And now the people of God are obviously people and they're humans. So they rebel against God. They run from God. They run to God. They run from God. And eventually they're put into exile. But all throughout their exile, they cry out to God. They say, God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. You are rescuing your people. And you have promised us through David, you will one day send a Messiah. And they say again, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that's the story of the prophets, them crying out to God and God responding. And this is where we find Zechariah, part of this grand story, in the middle of this grand story, crying out, with his barren wife, Elizabeth, crying out, God, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And eventually, the angel Gabriel comes, announces that Elizabeth is no longer barren, and they will have a son, and this son will prepare the way for the Messiah. And so Zechariah's immediate response is to rehearse this story, 
This story that's just as emotive as the story we saw. To rehearse this story. And so we read in Luke 1. Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And now he hits on all these important parts of the story. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, a reference to the Exodus, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So Zechariah is aware of this story. He's aware of where he is in this grand narrative. And he's aware that this story impacts all that we do. And I think the thing that we are to take away from it, because we are still the people of God, and Jesus has come, and that is a part of the story, and we are now looking forward to when Jesus will come again. But we're in a broken world, and there's suffering, and there's pain. And so this story has something to speak to us. I think this story, this grand narrative of the people of God, especially speaks to us in time of suffering and pain. And that's where Israel was. They were waiting. They were under oppression, as we've discussed. And on Wednesday, Mark and I were able to lay hands on and pray for Jeff Quinn, who, as many of you know, he went to the hospital several weeks ago with his tongue um, slightly numb and feeling paralyzed, and it has turned out to be a growth on his brain. And it's becoming more and more escalating as they rule things out. It seems to be a worse and worse situation. And then Thursday morning, I was able to go and lay hands and pray for Henry as he was about to enter one of his last rounds of chemo. A child under the age of one with cancer of the eye. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And yet we know that there's a greater story happening. There's a broader narrative that we're following. And that this isn't the end of the day. That cancer will not have the last moment. But rather resurrection and hope and trust is there. And so we remember this grand narrative that Jesus is coming again. That he will redeem all of humanity. That he will resurrect us. And we will follow him to his last days and to eternal life. And that this grand story has a last day. Not cancer or pain or suffering. And so it is with being the people of God that we are to have a memory. We are to have a memory of this grand story. Zechariah continues from this memory. The first section of his of his prophecy, his song here, his memory. He continues on to the second section. And he reminds us that if we are a people of memory, if we are remembering this grand story, then we are compelled to also be a people of mission. And because all throughout this grand narrative, whenever God calls someone, he calls them to to be blessed and then to bless others. So when he calls Abraham, he tells Abraham, I'm setting you apart. And yes, you will have many offspring, and yes, you will have land, but at the same time, you will be my witnesses to the world. You are called to represent me to the world. And it seems that every time Israel gets in trouble, it's because Israel forgets that they're supposed to represent God to the world. You see this in one instance in the book of Jonah, the story of the great fish. But in reality, the story is actually about a plant. Because at the last chapter, Jonah 
is called to prophesy to Nineveh, the very people who took his people captive, so his enemies. He's called to remind them that God loves them, and he pushes back, and eventually he does so begrudgingly, but he comes and sits under a plant, a tree, to get shade, and the tree withers, and he's mad at God. Why did you wither my sunshade? And God replies, why are you more mad that your plant is gone than the fact that these people over here may perish, the Ninevites. And so we see this over and over again. We see this even amongst when Jesus is working out his ministry, that the people, the nation of Israel, do not want to have anything to do with their captors, the Romans. They don't want to serve them as they're called to. And so this mission is a huge part of the story of God. And it's hard to remember in the midst of suffering but it's something that we're called to do. And you'll see in a second how memory and mission, these two things overlap and interplay with each other. And so Zechariah continues after he replays this, this story of God, and he says in verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so he calls John to be a forerunner for Jesus, Someone who goes before him and prepares the way. In the same way, the church is now called to be the forerunner for Christ's second coming. We're called to go before and prepare the way for Christ to come again. We're called to be on mission. We're called to represent God through word and deed. I think a way, uh, a way to remember this is that we're actually called to be ambassadors of Advent. Monica and I were talking, and we feel like the church, we're so thankful that the church is really stepping into this Advent theme. We read the blog, and if you were to probably do a search, the two words that would come up most often would be waiting and expectation. I think we get it, that we're here in this season of waiting and expectation. And, And I think one thing that I've been really thankful for is just listening to the stories of Advent. And I was talking with somebody from this church who was sharing with me about um, how she's been interacting with her coworker. Her coworker is a lesbian and doesn't have a very positive view of the church. And as they have been interacting, she's been noticing that there's kind of a hostility to Christians and Christianity. And um, her coworker comes to her and says, "Oh, did you hear? Westboro Baptist will be in Boston tomorrow." And Westboro Baptist, if you don't know, is that uh, Baptist church that claims that God has called them to speak against homosexuals. And so they have these signs called God Hates Fags and um, parade all around different cities protesting. And so, but this, this person of our church didn't really know what this Westboro Baptist was. She's like, okay, well, I guess they're coming. And the next day, she ends up driving through their picket line. And she sees what this is. She sees these signs. She sees this hatred. And she goes back to work with her coworker. And she says to him, she says, guess what? I was in the middle of this picket line, and this isn't the way the world is supposed to be. This isn't the church, and I hate that church, and this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And now we know, as Christians, that God has a design for human sexuality, but this isn't about human sexuality. This is about hate. And so she was there, and she was protesting against this, and she was in that moment being an ambassador of Advent. She was saying, look, This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God has a better plan, and God loves you. And in that moment, her friend realized that that's what what Christianity wasn't about. She had always assumed that Christianity, Westboro Baptist, and all of that was all on the same plane. And it was a turning point for her. 
And this member of our church was able to be on mission, to be an ambassador of Advent. And so I think this passage, this Zechariah passage, his song, calls us to be a people who are charged with memory and mission. And these two are interconnected. We can't be on mission unless we're overwhelmed by the memory. We'll have no desire to be on mission. We'll have no desire to proclaim the story of God unless we rehearse time and time again what the story of God is. And so we replay the story of creation, of the Exodus, of David, of the prophets, and of the Messiah coming. We replay it to be remembered of what the story is so that we can be on mission. But we're not going to remember the story unless we are on mission. Because if we're not on mission, we become self-centered. And again, I'm defining being on mission as sharing this huge narrative, the story of God. And Zechariah himself actually defines this mission as well. We see these last two verses of his song. It says, To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of light, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. So our call as the people of God who remember this grand narrative is to bring light where there is darkness and to give peace where there is despair. And so as a people who are on memory and mission, there's, there's three ways in which we can do this. And there's three ways in which Zechariah does this. If you can go to the next slide, please. Zechariah does this in a personal way, in a communal way, and in a cosmic way. Let me break that down. In a personal way, Zechariah does this by rejoicing over the barrenness of his child, or the barrenness of his wife becoming barren with child, or becoming pregnant with child. And they rejoice in this, and they praise God for that. So there's a personal memory of how God has worked. There's a communal memory of the nation of Israel. He remembers the story and how Israel is in the middle of this story. And there's also this cosmic sense in which Israel is called to represent God to the world. And so I want to challenge you all that before the night is over at some point is to think about this personally, communally, and cosmically. Think about this in a way, where has God been present to you? Where have you seen his working in your life? And where do you feel called to mission? So for me, personally, I've seen God move in my father's life. A man who was harsh and who did not know God to a gentleman. I've seen him move communally in the birth of the twins of David Jr. and Mary Camden. What a powerful way we've seen God's movement as a community. And cosmically, as God is moving this whole grand narrative back to him. And for mission, personally, I feel called to continually, day in and day out, share the story of God with my neighbors who live below me, sometimes through word, most often through deed. Communally, I feel called to be a part of this church, to be a part of my neighborhood group, to go out and to seek the welfare of our city, to seek its peace. And cosmically, we are all part, as Christians, of God's redeeming story. So I ask you, as we go through the Eucharist, as we listen to the salvation story again during the great Thanksgiving, as we sing... Think about where is God calling you to remember and where is God calling you to be on mission, personally, communally, and cosmically. And so again, as we stand in the middle between these two advents, we have a new perspective. As you look back, we look at this story, 
and we look forward with this hope. Let us be a people of memory and mission. Amen.